Good evening. It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. We get support from the Pizza Joint, offering New York-style pizzas by the slice or pie, cheese or meatball manicotti, and more. Open daily, takeout or curbside pickup for social distancing. On Commercial Street, Nevada City. ThePizzaJointNC.com Today is Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. My name is Claudio Mendonca, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Tonight, the California Report reveals that Los Angeles is set to be the latest city to give no-strings-attached cash payments to people who need it. We'll cover the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial and look at regional weather before diving into this week's water news. We'll close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. L.A. could be the latest city to give no-strings-attached cash payments to people who need it. This year, Los Angeles will launch the largest guaranteed basic income pilot of any city in America. That was L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti at his State of the City speech last night. We have budgeted $24 million to provide $1,000 a month to 2,000 households for an entire year No questions asked wherever poverty lives in our city. While the concept of a guaranteed income isn't new, it's gained momentum recently with experiments around the world and right here in California, most famously in Stockton. Only Angelinos at or below the federal poverty line would be eligible. The mayor's office says other criteria are still being considered, but will likely include whether a potential recipient supports a child or has a demonstrated medical or financial hardship due to COVID-19. When you give money to people who are poor, it creates better outcomes. It covers childcare. It puts food on the table. It leads to more high school graduations and better checkups. The guaranteed income experiment is part of a so-called equity and justice budget, which Garcetti will formally introduce today. A federal judge is limiting the L.A. Police Department's use of so-called less lethal weapons during protests. The judge ordered that the projectile launchers can only be used by specifically trained officers and only after warnings have been issued. Black Lives Matter Los Angeles filed a request for a temporary restraining order against the LAPD in light of incidents last month when officers clashed with protesters and a photojournalist was reportedly injured by a projectile launched by police. The organization is also suing over how the department handled protests over the killing of George Floyd last summer, alleging that police hurt several demonstrators. This comes as law enforcement agencies across the state are preparing for possible protests in light of the verdict being handed down in Derek Chauvin's trial. Images of the former police officer's knee on George Floyd's neck in his final minutes have played around the world since the trial began three weeks ago. For one professor of public health at UC Berkeley, those images and Chauvin's defense carry the weight of history. To her, they're proof of how stereotypes about the health and well-being of people in the black community are used to shift blame in acts of police brutality. Here's Professor Denise Hurd. Some of the imagery around black men uh, uh, as being threatening based on their size, based on, on the fact that Floyd was believed to be under the influence and the, the um, belief that being under the influence could make someone suddenly be 
uh, non-compliance suddenly be wild and mm-hmm. uncontrollable. These seem to me to be like um, very stereotypical type of images that have been prominent, um, you know, ever since I, I think they came into strong prominence, especially during the post-Reconstruction period. Mm-hmm. I actually did research on uh, that period and looking at the way those kind of images were used in the prohibition movement to say that one of the reasons why there should be prohibition in the South was because of the wild, uncontrollable nature of Black men uh, as beasts, who when mm-hmm. with when drinking, they would um, rape white women. That's one of the things that came up for me. The fact that a police officer would cause the death of someone by placing them in that kind of hold for nine and a half minutes while the person is obviously struggling, can't breathe, and people all around them are telling him to stop. Reminded me of a, you know, a a present day lynching. And we have heard Derek Chauvin's defense argue that George Floyd died due to prior health problems, that he had problems with his heart. They've also talked about how he had drugs in his system at the time. In your view, what role does racism play in those arguments? They brought in a number of witnesses that have flatly refuted the defense's arguments. I mean, I, I remember accounts stating that one of, you know, at least one, if not more people said that even a healthy person would have died under those circumstances and that um, his health problems, you know, did not contribute really to his death. Um, the other thing that disturbs me as a person in public health is that, you know, um, these kind of health problems, chronic health problems, are very common in communities of color. So we have somebody who is not only being, you know, treated very badly, I mean, in fact, being killed by the police, but also being blamed for having a health problem that is also a result, in my opinion, of systemic racism. So we have communities of color where heart disease is rampant. It's one of the number one killers in the black community. Uh, And so instead of looking at that, instead of blaming George Floyd for, for, you know, having a heart condition and, and, uh, and blaming the murder on a heart condition, it's being used to help exonerate uh, a police, a policeman. And that to me is really problematic when these communities are already being killed at earlier ages um, Mm. by things like the chronic diseases, as well as something like COVID. And George Floyd also had recovered from COVID, you know, only to be then killed at the hands of the police. Mm. Well, the eyes of the world are on Minneapolis. Uh, We are all watching uh, what comes of this verdict. UC Berkeley public health professor Denise Hurd, thank you so much. Thank you. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. Personalcapital.com. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research. 
sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, April 20th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Make sure to check out our podcast if you haven't already. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get yours. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person, 019. Eleven months after the death of George Floyd, a jury deliberated just over 10 hours before returning guilty verdicts on all three counts. Second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin showed little reaction as the verdict was read. His bail was immediately revoked, and he was remanded into custody. He will be sentenced in two months and could face up to a combined 75 years in prison. President Joe Biden addressed the nation shortly thereafter. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the Vice President just referred to. There was systemic racism that's a stain on our nation's soul. In regional weather, for Grass Valley in Nevada City, tonight, a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms before 11 p.m., then partly cloudy with a low around 47. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 71. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area, Tonight, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Snow levels 8,000 feet, lowering to 6,000 feet after midnight. A low around 29. Tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 57. And for Woodland and Sacramento, tonight, a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms before 11 p.m. Then, mostly clear, with a low around 51. Tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 82. As California heads into a second year of dry conditions, hydrogeologist Steve Baker offers advice on how we can all work together to lessen the sting of drought. 
This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, it's time for Water News with Steve Baker. Welcome back, Steve. Hey, I'm glad to be back. So, Steve, there's a bit of a buzz about our current drought. Mm, Um, Yeah. How do you describe it? Well, right now I describe it as two consecutive years of dry. So that's what's been happening. This year brought us 59% of the snowpack. Not 100% like we want, 100% or normal. Nah, uh 59%. Now, remember, precipitation that comes and snow, uh, according to the, cli- the climate change characteristics, how they make their projections or predictions, is supposed to come earlier. All right? Well, I'm still waiting because we didn't really get that much anyhow this winter. So it's, it's, it just didn't come. Uh, secondly, of course, our snowpack has halved itself which presents its problems. And that's a measurement that was made on April 1st of of this month. And then thirdly, NOAA, or National Weather Service, they expect some pretty hot days this summer, more than usual. It's above average heat this coming summer. So when you add all that up, we, we need to be on the alert to change some of our behaviors this summer so that we can adapt to this drought. Well, let's talk about food. Oh, okay. pretty basic thing. Yeah. Food and water seem to go together. Um, what is the situation with our current farmers right now? How do they feel about what's going yeah, on? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, from the from a statewide perspective, farmers are really taking a hit. And let me tell you why. Have you gone to the gas station lately and picked up a gallon of gas? You know, filled up your tank. The uh, the cost of gasoline's going up. The cost of diesel it's going up. It's costing our farmers a lot more too. And then on top of that, there are those costs that are extra costs that they're spending to safeguard their, their farm labor from COVID. All right. So all that extra cost as well. These people have to be protected as well. And then and now water allocations in many of the south of Delta regions, they were reduced down to 5%. So, for example, if you were to receive 100 acre feet of water, you're only getting five. That's it. So how, how can you grow crops with that much less water? They're in a real pickle, and, uh, and, and it's a concern, especially for those in the Central Valley that have orchards. They need water no matter what, or they die. They don't come back. And so uh, those particular farms that have orchards are experiencing even more, more hardship, potentially. I think all the farmers are feeling hope on the other end of things when they see the community people supporting local farms. And that's something I also would, you know, certainly encourage here. And just like any business, what the farmers are trying to do, they're, they're trying to balance all the resources necessary to grow our food. And that includes water, right? Workforce, soil, sunlight, the economics, all this stuff wrapped into one nicely balanced that will maintain a healthy and sustainable farm. That's what we're shooting for. Okay. On uh, Another part of it is environmental realities. And mm-hmm. uh, how are the salmon, um, how are they doing uh, during the spring and summer hot weather? How, what's it going to look like for them? Well, as you, as most of our listeners already realize, is salmon loves cold weather or cold water. And if it's, if it's getting too warm, that can be very hazardous to salmon. And so what is some good news is the Bureau of Reclamation is going to adjust their springtime operations up at Shasta Dam so that uh, they will benefit the endangered winter-run Chinook salmon, okay, down the Sacramento River. 
which is great to do that. And it's 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 no easy task. They've had to coordinate with a lot of different groups, including NOAA Fisheries, including Western Area Power Administration, the State Water Resource Control Board, and the Sacramento River Settlement Contractors. I mean, that's a lot of negotiating. But they did it. And they're trying to preserve the amount of cool water in the reservoir. Okay, They want to keep it as long as possible. So they will be maintaining the the elevate the withdrawal elevations and also the timing of when these water releases are happening but they are going to be releasing warmer water warmer water in Shasta reservoir is 55 degrees the cooler water is, is a lot chillier than that um, there's a sacrifice to this plan and that sacrifice is to accomplish sending out the warmer water right now instead of the colder water that means they have to bypass the generation of hydroelectric power all right, so they're uh, they're helping in one way, but they're they're going to be damaged in another way. And let me give you an idea of the amount of value on a daily basis that, that a, this particular power plant can provide. Shasta Dam's power plant provides approximately a quarter million California households per day with electricity. All right, that's a lot. And so if they're making this kind of adjustment, they're going to have to make up for it somewhere. So right now, there's an ongoing effort to come up with a way to lessen the impacts to those particular to, to those households who would be expecting that power. This is this is big news, actually, ah, that we're well. talking about right now. And haven't heard that much about it yet in the news, but it's coming. So the real question is, how can we adapt to uh, what's going to be happening with this current drought? I guess we can use that word. Yeah. You know, when, when life is good and the rain, rain has been plentiful, we, you know, we just enjoy it for what it is. This is not one of those years. So we have to consciously use less water. Recognize with your water use in your homes uh, what you're doing and then ask yourself if you really need that water. So when you turn that spigot on, do I really need to do this right now? Can I do it a different way so I use less water? Those are the kind of adjustments that you make. These are micro adjustments. But the bigger one, the more macro adjustment, the bigger adjustment is what you're doing outside the house. Okay, that's where a lot of our water really ends up in the summertime. Find ways to water your landscape less. The long-term solution for these kinds of things, um, in other words, this will be for next year if we continue in a drought, will be to come up with alternative water sources. It's, it's the way to go. So you supplement. You're trying to avoid using NID water or groundwater. All right? So what do you do? Well, you, you catch water by uh, rainwater harvesting. Put it in a cistern. Or use groundwater or NID, but fill up that cistern in February when we have a lot of water coming. It's not going to be missed. And now we have this extra supply of water on our properties. Do things like that. Steve, thank you so much. You bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. You can hear an extended version of that conversation on kvmr.org or by subscribing to the KVMR News Podcast. Finally, we close with a commentary from Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. There seems to be a lot of help-wanted signs around town. It is a bit odd there would be a plethora of help-wanted signs with the official unemployment rate sitting at about 6%, albeit down from a March 2020 high of 14%. 
unemployment is still off its normal lows of around 4%. No surprise to anyone that there are many people out of work due to COVID. It is argued that the increased unemployment benefits may be dulling incentive for some to get back to work. Several media outlets have touched on the subject, and the debate rages on as to whether the lucrative unemployment benefits and bonuses are keeping people from looking for work. Talking with a handful of business owners in the last few months seems to confirm a tight labor market exists and workers are less than plentiful. A March 2021 article by Bill Connerly entitled The Labor Market is Tight Despite High Unemployment details the plight of various business owners that cannot meet the demand of consumers as the economy opens up and patrons flood back into retail establishments. Official statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics peg the unemployment rate at about 6.3 percent, which is far from full employment as determined by the Federal Reserve. Indeed, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell recently stated the real unemployment rate is closer to 10 percent. No doubt the statistics are grim. Millions of people lost their jobs during the pandemic with the bulk of layoffs in March and April of 2020, with weekly bonuses for unemployment benefits initially set at $600. The monthly minimum payments to anyone successfully applying and receiving unemployment would well likely yield a check of over $3,000 or more. Many workers receiving such benefits made more money staying at home than they had previously made working. A Yale University study on the effects of unemployment payments on incentive, however, found little correlation between the increased payments and the incentive. From a July 2020 article from CNBC's Make It website, it stated, The Yale University research showed that low-wage workers and workers from states where unemployment benefits were lower did not experience larger declines in unemployment when the benefits expansion went into effect. Although the $600 weekly bonus payments ended July 31st of 2020, The current weekly bonus is still over $300. The bonus is paid on top of the normal reimbursement for being unemployed. Whatever the reason for the shortage of workers, the job market remains tight despite the unusually high unemployment rates. The question on how to get people back to work spurned another novel idea by Senate Republicans in July of 2020. Pay a different kind of bonus for people to get back to work, calling it a back-to-work bonus, although the proposal never really got off the ground. The idea was put forth by Senator Rob Portman, Republican in Ohio. The program would provide a temporary 450 weekly payment on top of the weekly paycheck for returning to work. Just last week, this idea resurfaced again in the media. Many are calling the weekly unemployment bonuses excessive and the idea of another payment to go back to work ridiculous. The COVID-19 event continues to challenge humankind. With millions suffering from economic hardship, that the labor market remains tight is indeed perplexing. Many claim the payments are excessively high and are the reason for many not returning to work. Others believe that every penny of monetary assistance was necessary, and some are arguing even more help is needed. No matter what side of the argument one believes, there is little doubt that receiving more in subsidy payments for not working will sway some into staying at home in lieu of returning to the workforce. The other side of that argument is while the programs initiated during COVID may not have been perfect, the economy and many of the people in it were helped tremendously by these payments. Whether there could have been a better way will likely never be known. One thing is certain, however, the amount of debt the U.S. government is amassing to pay for all of this is off the charts. 
That does it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, its staff, management, or underwriters. Nothing stated is to be construed as individual investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and am a Medicare-approved agent in the state of California. Our email is news at moneymanagementradio.com. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast for tonight. The KVMR Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Stay with us. Educationally Speaking is next, followed by Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.